0: Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Drazer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Normally, this would be the moment where I will plug Counterpunch Plus, our subscriber section and all that jazz. You can hear me do that many times over in all of the previous episodes, but considering the nature of our subject matter today and the urgency with which we really need to be speaking about. And I'm going to dispense with that and just do a very short anecdote and just tell you a quick little story about a somewhat young Jewish American aspiring activist who found a little publication called Counterpunch in the early 2000s and a book called The Politics of Anti Semitism and a guy named Alexander Coburn and a guy named Jeff Sinclair. And uh, that guy was me. And that was part of my journey in understanding what the Palestine issue is, how we American Jews should think about it, how we should approach it, and how it should inform our politics and our political and personal evolution. It was a seminal um, discovery for me, and I don't think it would have been possible without counterpunch. So... That is exactly the kind of thing that I think Counterpunch brings to the table. And if you want to support independent media and to support uh, the opportunity for other young people to discover this politics and to discover uh, liberation struggles and so forth, please consider becoming a supporter of Counterpunch. You get so much great content and you also find people like Ramzi Baroud, somebody whose work I followed for years and years, whose work has informed so much of how I view not just the Palestine issue. You, but many other issues uh, Ramsey is one of the best He is a regular contributor to Counterpunch He's a US-Palestinian journalist Media consultant and author He is the editor of Palestine Chronicle Senior research fellow at the Center for Islam and Global Affairs And of course an author I would just plug a couple of books One, the most recent one These Chains Will Be Broken Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons And a forthcoming project that he's uh, working on With the uh, legendary Ilan Pape. Uh, our vision for liberation, engage Palestinian leaders and intellectuals, speak out. Uh, this is an important project. This is an important person, and I'm very happy to speak with him today. Ramsey, welcome back to Counterpunch.
1: Uh, thank you for having me, uh, Eric. And, and I appreciate all the work that you do and, and of course all that Counterpunch has done throughout the years.
0: Thank you so much for that. And of course, we'll just jump right into all of the uh, latest information. We are recording here on May 18th. It's now been over a week of the latest Israeli war crime against the people of Palestine. So let's just begin with the latest. Ramsey. what do you have for us? What can you do to bring us up to speed to understand what's happening now?
1: Well, this is for the first time we can actually say this is not just a war on Gaza. Uh, as was the case in 2014, 2012, 2008, and other uh, wars and an assault on the Ga- uh, assaults on the besieged Gaza Strip. Rather, this is a war on all Palestinians, uh, in, in, and it's taking place in all of occupied Palestine. Now, the bad news and the good news. The bad news is that, of course, hundreds of innocent lives are being uh, harvested by the Israeli military machine. Uh, and that is to be expected when you besiege uh, besiege areas uh, like the Gaza Strip, one of the uh, poorest, if not literally the poorest place on earth, with a population of two million plus people living within 365 uh, 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 hundred kilometers, that's about 181 square miles, and you place them under uh, a hermetic siege, destroy their infrastructure pollute their water, destroy their hospitals, their schools, and then come yet again and and start the bombing, another round of massive bombing all over again. I mean, we can expect that, of course, there will be numerous people buried under their their homes. It doesn't take a particular uh, genius or foresight to see that. But also, this is a war on all Palestinians. We are seeing Elements of this war taking place in occupied East Jerusalem, starting with the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood where its people have been informed that they are going to be removed from their homes and their homes will be given to uh, Jewish extremists and eventually will be used, of course, to building yet more illegal Jewish settlements uh, to ensure that there is a demographic Jewish majority In Jerusalem. And now we are seeing elements of that war throughout the West Bank. Just today alone, for example, uh, four Palestinians were killed, 1,400 were wounded according to the Red Crescent Society. A few days ago, 10 Palestinians were killed, over 1,000 were wounded also in the West Bank, in all of its major cities, but also villages and refugee camps. And we are also seeing this massive and unprecedented attack on Palestinian uh, communities, inside Israel, in Umm al-Fahm, uh, in Al-Lud, uh, in uh, other parts of uh, today's Israel, are also being at, under attack. And, and this is the bad news. We are looking here at uh, literally hundreds of dead and thousands of wounded. But here's the good news, and I, I really hate to try to spin some positive anything at a situation that is so drastic and so tragic as this. But the fact is, and you know, I have written about this at Counterpunch many, many times in the past, to the point that you start getting tired of your own words and start maybe even doubting yourself slightly, where I said that Palestinian unity will never happen through factions. Whether Hamas and Fatah find common grounds or don't find common grounds, it doesn't matter. Unity is, is a value that can only happen at a popular level. Only the Palestinian people can decide when and how to unite they will decide the time and the place for that unity and this is precisely what is taking place in palestine right now we are seeing palestinians rising in every street corner in every village in every town every city and every refugee camp throughout palestine people who have been classified as israeli arabs for the last 70 years people who have been classified as gazans as opposed to palestinians people who have been classified as residents of Jerusalem or people of area A, B, and C within the West Bank. I don't want to bore you too much of the details of why these divisions came about in the first place. But really, even Palestinians themselves start buying into this notion, maybe we are different in that sense. People in Gaza are being slaughtered, but people in Ramallah are living in some kind of a a bubble where you know the, the traffic is fine and the restaurants are open and everything is, is good and dandy. And and yet here we are, once more, facing this massive historical transition in which there are Palestinian people in all of their backgrounds, classes, religions, sects, demographic differences in all in all of Palestine, not just Palestine, but Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. All over the world, rising as one. Ilan Papi and I were talking the other day, and he said he has been walking around the streets of Haifa, talking to Palestinian uh, protesters uh, uh, in Haifa itself. And he said, he asked them kind of half sarcastically So, are you guys Hamas, Fatah, Popular Front, you know, in reference to the socialist movement? And, and he said the answer was no, man. We are, we are Palestinians. You know, enough of that. Enough. We had enough of that. We are all Palestinians, uh, and that's the that's the beauty of what's happening right now. As I said earlier, it's hard to think of the positive in during times of this nature, but there is something that we can't deny that is positive, and that is finally we are beginning to conjure up the actual meaning of Palestinian unity that is being narrated and demonstrated on a daily basis by Palestinians themselves on the ground.
0: One of the things I so appreciate about your work, including in just recent days, is your focus on Palestinian agency, on the fact that, yes, of course, Palestinians are victims, victims of uh, crime against humanity and war crimes on a daily basis. And yet at the same time, a focus on uh, the ability of Palestinian people to take their uh, fate and future into their own hands and to sort of rise up. And this focus on Palestinian agency, I think, raises this question. Can you help us to understand how the response from Palestinians inside of Israel today, how that contrasts with their reaction, say, in prior instances of Israeli aggression against Gaza and the West Bank.
1: That's right. Just before I address this point, I just want to talk about the Palestinian agency uh, in particular, and and the need for Palestinians, what I, I keep, again, parroting over and over again, the need to reclaim the narrative. What I mean by that, it's not a sentimental issue, and it's not an ethnocentric issue either, the need to reclaim the narrative. It is based on the understanding of any accurate understanding actually of history that says in order for a people to articulate actual collective aspirations, that articulation has to happen through them, themselves. It has to come from them, otherwise, neither you, Eric, nor anybody else around the world, no matter how sympathetic they are to the Palestinian people, can truly understand and appreciate the situation in an authentic, genuine, real, and tangible way. This is why the need for Palestinians to reclaim their narrative. I mean, imagine a scenario in which the, um, the, 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 the um, African liberation movement in, in, in throughout Africa in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even 80s were all the spokesperson for that movement, say, sympathetic w- Westerners or sympathetic white people in the United States? It would have made very little sense. This is not a racial issue, but it makes sense for the people who are undergoing uh, undergoing colonialism, apartheid racism, to be the ones who take the flag, the, the banner, and to speak for themselves and to be at the center of any uh, platform cons- concerning the cons- uh, the. the concerning their their national aspirations as people. The Palestinians, however, have been the exception for a long time. We have been told um, that we, you know, not really in in, in so many words, but we've really more or less been marginalized from our own uh, uh, context. We've been almost told that we are a liability. You know, Palestinians are not very liked. Mainstream media hates them so much. So let's bring other people to speak on on behalf of Palestinians. And that's really where the intellectual movement among Palestinian historians and intellectuals of all academic and non-academic backgrounds that came to the fore and said, it's time for us to articulate a new Palestinian discourse. And that's what we have been pushing for for so many years. So for us to see this happening on the ground, uh, a couple of days ago, there was a protest here in Seattle near my house and, and it, the demographics of that protest. The nature of that protest for me represented a microcosm of the massive change that's happening globally. When I first came to the United States as a young student at the University of Washington, um, whenever there was a, a protest for Palestine, there will always be very few people, almost no person of color whatsoever, to the point if there is a black woman activist or a black man activist, everybody would be whispering like, oh, look, we are reaching Black people too, as if that is, you know, in itself an achievement. But if you saw what happened in Seattle a couple of days ago, you would be absolutely inspired and surprised. The Over a thousand people just showed up some, you you know, uh, uh, spontaneously to this protest that was announced a couple of days earlier. And not just that, the majority of them were people of color, Black Lives Matter activists, indigenous activists, Native American activists, Filipino activists, Colombian activists, and each group is is part of of some other cause. And, And somehow brought together, they represented a mass movement. The language they spoke, how daring they were, the narrative they articulated, and the fact is, what is even more beautiful than that, the ones who are taking the center stage of the protest, which is, again, a phenomenon that we see all around the globe, is a young generation of Palestinian uh, uh, students, Palestinian activists, Palestinian artists, you know, Palestinians of all backgrounds. That is a major change that is happening. And I think that change is also corresponding to the change that is happening in Palestine itself. A recent article that I wrote about this, and I, I in fact, I just sent it recently, to Counterpunch, talking about the, 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 the fact that this is a youthful movement that is growing, uh, that is, you know, uh, uh, sprouting in Palestine. It's a movement of people who were largely either were, were born after or were really matured politically after the signing of the Oslo Accords of, of 1993. People who have been living under a dual system of Israeli military occupation and apartheid but also a system of corruption that is led by their own supposed representatives in the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Kids who have never voted and just when they had the chance or thought that they had the chance to vote, uh, their president, Mahmoud Abbas, decided to cancel their their, their vote. So here they are, dehumanized, oppressed, marginalized, unemployed, uh, lacking freedom, lacking any political aspirations, but also the mere idea of them actually having representatives speak on their behalf, that also was canceled. So there is so much anger. There is so much there is so much frustration, but there's also so much understanding that in order for us to rise as a people, we have to take charge of our own fate. We have to take charge of our own destiny, and we need to pass through... Not Oslo. We know the Oslo Accords was, was nonsense from the very beginning. And we knew, as Edward Said argued from the very, very beginning, that this is not going to lead anywhere. But the problem wasn't Oslo. It was the culture, the culture of Oslo uh, that was created in the last for uh, 40 years, the fact that there are Palestinian classes now, a small class of Palestinian millionaires who are operating in Ramallah and Beit Laham and Beit Jala, and a vast majority of impoverished people who are isolated and oppressed. So in in my opinion, and again, we haven't yet discussed all of this. I, I, put, a, I put a note on, on Twitter the other day, and I said, historians take a note of this. This is the Palestinian revolt of 2021. And I will tell you more about it later. And what I mean by that is that there will be a, a massive discussion in the next weeks, months, and years even of how to dissect and how to understand this revolt. And I think part of it is not just against Israeli occupation and apartheid and racism and violence, and, but it's also against Arab normalizations with Israel against the normalization of the very Israeli occupation that involves Arab countries like Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, and others, and also against the very corruption of the Palestinian Authority that ceased to represent Palestinians by any extent. So this is really something that I think much discussion would have to follow. This is a revolution of of, of not only of an isolated people, but also of a class, of Palestinians, impoverished Palestinians, working class Palestinians, rising to the occasion and taking charge of their own future.
0: You raised so many issues in those comments. I'm almost sort of not sure where to go. But uh, before we head to the break, I will ask this one question that does relate to some of the points that you were just making. How Ramsey, how is Sheikh Jarrah a, a microcosm for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine? Because I, I know you've written about that recently. You've mentioned it, I think, in a couple of pieces this week. But um, talk us through this a little bit. Uh, what was going on in Sheikh Jarrah as sort of this very obvious example of the broader issue and why we why we talk about ethnic cleansing in Palestine?
1: That's right. Now, you know, interestingly, just uh, three days ago, uh, there was the the anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, that was commemorated the the the, the catastrophic uh, destruction of the Palestinian homeland in nineteen forty seven, nineteen forty eight. Now, this is what Palestinians refer to as a al Mustamira, the ongoing catastrophe, the idea that the ethnic cleansing that began in 1947-48 in actuality never ended. Therefore, the Nakba cannot be a historical occasion that, that, is, that is placed in some sort of a historical archive, but it's an actual process that extends all the way from Palestine 47-48 all the way to Sheikh Jarrah. And that's really the point that myself, but I also know of many others who try to make, that there are two stories pertaining to Sheikh Jarrah. There is the story, the news story, the soundbite, even the sympathetic soundbites, but still soundbites nonetheless, in the sense that a group of Palestinians, uh, a group of Palestinian families who have been living in these homes for many decades, who have been informed by the Israeli court that they need to evacuate and their homes are being given to Jewish uh, uh, settlers, who have been claiming these homes in Israeli courts. So then the the, the debate is, should these illegal Jewish extremist settlers be granted the Palestinian homes or not? But there is a much more interesting story that actually goes beyond Sheikh Jarrah. And that's where the element of Sheikh Jarrah being a microcosm for a much larger issue. The fact is not just Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, not just the Silwan neighborhood in, Sheikh Jer- in East Jerusalem. Not only Babel Amud. Not only all the neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. In fact, not all, not all of East Jerusalem itself—that is—has been fighting for the very survival of the Palestinian, the Palestinian human being in East Jerusalem. Has been pushed out slowly for many years. Israel has expanded the boundaries of the what they call the greater Jerusalem municipality in order for them to push more Palestinians out of this new, you know, new borders of Jerusalem, but also bring as many uh, uh, Jews into, into the boundaries of the city, including Jews who are living uh, in illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. So there's this articulate and, 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 and really very detailed plan that has been taking place for so many many years that involves the Israeli government, the the very municipality planners of Jerusalem itself, the illegal Jewish settlers in the West Bank, the Jewish Zionist and extremist groups and ultra-nationalist groups in the Israeli Knesset, and of course, the right camp in general. The idea is Jerusalem is the eternal and divided capital of Israel regardless of what international law says about it, regardless of the fact that Israel is there illegally. And how, how, the question is, how do we make that happen? So the once Palestinian majority in East Jerusalem, because of this systematic, uh, systematic campaign of pushing them out now, they are the clear minority and the Jews are the extreme, or, or the, the, the Jews are the, uh, the demographic majority in that city. This has been going on for such a long time. It just happened that Sheikh Jarrah, this particular episode in Sheikh Jarrah, was the moment when Palestinians, all Palestinians decided enough is enough. This is not just about Sheikh Jarrah. It's not about East Jerusalem. It's about all of occupied Palestine. It's about the racism, the rampant racism uh, and, 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 and apartheid that has been taking place and getting rooted in Palestine day after day, this is about our history, it's about our culture, it's about our language, it's about our religions, and it's about our roots in this historic Holy Land.
0: And to put it bluntly, it's about a genocidal project, because ultimately what we're witnessing is the Israelis attempting to carry out a slow genocide. And when I say genocide, I use that term not so lightly. Genocide in the sense meaning literally trying to erase the Palestinian people from the earth.
1: Absolutely, Eric. I mean, you—you you basically just defined the term genocide the same way that the uh, the international community, the United Nations in particular, defines the term genocide. It's a legal term. It's not a swear word, you know. So we absolutely this is there, Israel is practicing among uh, many crimes uh, the crime of genocide in Palestine. In fact, the International Criminal Court right now has, as 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 you know, and and has been written repeatedly on counterpunch is is uh, undergoing an investigation of Israeli war crimes uh, or alleged uh, for the time being Israeli war crimes in occupied Palestine. One of the main legal arguments that the, the pro Palestine lawyers at the ICC uh, have been arguing here is that but that definition has to extend. Um, the ICC is using what they call the, the uh, uh, a narrow scope definition, which is war crimes. But if you actually think about it from illegal point of view, Israel is practicing the crime of apartheid, the crime of aggression, crimes against peace. And most importantly, as we see in, in, uh, throughout Palestine and especially in Gaza, the crime of genocide. Now, there are, in fact, some serious efforts at pushing the ICC to expand its definition of Israeli war crimes because of what is happening in Palestine at the moment.
0: There's so much more to say about that. Let's take a quick break and we'll continue the conversation with Ramsey Baroud on the other side of the break. Do take this opportunity to pre-order a copy of the book, Our Vision for Liberation, Engaged Palestinian Leaders and Intellectuals Speak Out. That book will be coming out later this year. Ramsey's stuff is always a must read, as you know from reading Counterpunch. Stay with us. We will be right back. This
1: Palestine, of course,
0: the capital Jerusalem, unarmed people marching to the war and they shooting them. Suppression is a Resistance is the answer. Long live Palestine. Long live Gaza. Palestine or Quds. The capital Jerusalem. Unarmed people marching to the wall, and they're shooting up
1: Suppression is a question. Resistance is the answer. Long live Palestine. Long live Gaza. All you see is war. Every time you turn your
0: head at night, bloodshed yes. on the floor. Mother cries who cries
1: for her? This time Truth between these walls. See the lies between the lines they hide Where the bullets coming from From the tyrants dressed in our disguise I'm alright until the end Even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we not gonna stop the Palestinian is free But still you know that I'm to ride until the end Even if I got a pushback for all my friends Cause you know that I'm a fighter Let me see a lighter And we not gonna stop the Palestinian is free
0: don't you know. to be blind. Táカ总, não se care. Tell me what's real. Borderlines, military, despair. How to exist if there's no range to be human in fear? And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? Don't you know. to be blind. How to not care. Tell me what's real. Borderlines, military despair. How to exist if there's no range to be human in fear? And if you take away your home, where's the house supposed to live? We're back chatting with Ramsey Baroud again. Ramsey's been a contributor to Counterpunch for years and years. I have learned a great deal about the issue from him and many of his collaborators. So I would urge everybody to uh, not just get a copy of the recent books, but to explore all of Ramsey's work because you trust me, you will not regret taking that time. So Ramsey, let's uh, pick up exactly where we, were le- where we left off. And I want to talk a little bit about language. We talked about the word genocide. Um, now I want to talk about the language that, uh, that we use and that the media and the international press uses to describe what we're witnessing in Palestine. So let me just ask in the simplest way possible, is this a war? Is this a conflict? Are these clashes? And what does it matter what words we use to describe
1: what we're witnessing? Of course, of course, and language matters. It matters greatly because the vast majority of people determine their their relationship with any um, issue that that they hear in the media based on that language. Uh, if you, uh, for example, uh, if, you know, hear uh, uh, the word uh, "come" or "war" between Hamas and Israel, I mean, what is the What is the impression that you, as as a person who might not be involved and fully understanding this this subject, what kind of impression will you conjure up? Um, You will get the impression that um, Israel is fighting a war with a group called Hamas. Okay, but what are the other impressions that we know and we have gathered about Hamas? Watching uh, Fox News, watching CNN, reading the New York Times, watching MSNBC, reading the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, everything... It is, this is a terrorist organization. When you look at images of Hamas leaders on Fox News and CNN, in, in the mind of average Americans, this is going to bring, you know, conjure up images and you know uh, moral equivalence between uh, this and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and so forth. You lost the war, you lost, you lost the public opinion immediately just by making up that, uh, that, that uh, uh, reference uh um MSNBC or rather NBC uh, website had um an article a few days ago that that really I found maddening is just to say the least, where they referred to a religious war a religious war underway in Israel. they said in reference to the Jewish extremists attacking Palestinian Christian and Muslim communities inside Israel. Now, again, what impression would you gather based on that definition? You would just, it's really going to contribute to this idea that exists in, in the minds of many Americans throughout the decades that this is a war over religion. You know, I've been told that myself, Eric, repeatedly. But Ramsey, I mean, what can we do? These people have been fighting over religions, uh, religion since the time of Moses. And you try to, 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 to explain to them, no, 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 this is a political conflict. It's a political conflict that began in the late 19th century with the rise of the Zionist movement. This is, for Palestinians, it's a national liberation struggle, not any difference from the struggle for uh, equal rights uh, in in South Africa, not a difference from the struggle against uh, British colonialism in India. But of course, all of these terminologies have been muddled up so intentionally by mainstream media, sometimes intentionally, I quite often intentionally, but also sometimes out of sheer ignorance, because they don't want to do their homework, they don 't want to truly try to truly try to understand what is happening here. So no, it's not a conflict either, because we're not disputing a piece of land here. We are a, a people who have been living my my family goes back in Palestine hundreds and hundreds of years ago. I can't even trace how far they go to Palestine because it's an ancient plan that has lived in that part of the world for such a long time. The same situation for the vast majority of Palestinians. When European European, uh, colonialists come in, in the mid 20th century, coming in from European countries, from East Europe, from the United States eventually, and ethnically cleanse my people out, dump us into refugee camps in Lebanon, uh, in, in Jordan, in Syria, in Iraq, all over the world, and and lock us behind walls and fences in Gaza, in the West Bank. And then they try to make the argument that they are the natives to that land. I mean, imagine a scenario in which Benjamin Netanyahu, a Polish man, his father is a Polish man, comes in from Poland and claims to be the native of my homeland. And my father, who has the same skin color of that of Jesus Christ, for crying out loud, becomes the outsider the nomad the, the 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 colonialist himself so history is shift is, is really kind of turned on its head here so we are fighting to restore terminology israel is not a native nation in palestine israel is another western colonialist project while many clo- traditional colonialist projects have been defeated eventually palestine the, is, the, the western project in palestine is still there And we are fighting to end it. We want to end this colonial project. We want to restore the dignity of the natives and the indigenous people of that land. We want them to exercise their right of return to their original homeland, as enshrined in international law. We want all religions to be respected. Nobody should have any special status over anybody else. Muslim, Christians, and Jews should be treated as equal. This land does not belong to a particular religion over all other religions. This is what we are fighting for. And we need to insist on the terminologies that would allow us to get to that point, that this is a national liberation struggle. Palestinians are not militants. They are freedom fighters. This is not a terrorist war. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's a popular resistance. It's a massive resistance movement that, that takes so many people Uh, uh, fighting at all fronts to sustain it and to make it happen.
0: I'd like to ask you, definitely shift gears a little bit here and and bring us back to the events of recent days, because we did focus a bit at the very beginning of our conversation, Ramsey, about some of the latest developments. And one of the obviously uh, headline making ones around the world was the Israeli uh, targeting of media and the attack on the building that housed uh, the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, and I think some local press as well. Um, Can you talk to me a little bit about this incident? about the global outcry and about whether or not you think that this was a blunder on the part of the Israelis and is this going to impact them in terms of world opinion? Oh, oh And secondly, and, and, and most importantly, I should also add, help us to understand what their motivation may have been for doing this. Why would they do this with their precision guided missiles and all of the rest of their advanced technology?
1: You know, Eric, I try to be careful with my terminology. And I try to be careful because we've learned from the past of making certain claims or uh, staked certain hopes and these hopes and these claims were not met and that eventually demoralizes people. But that in mind, I'd like to say that we are witnessing a moment of historical proportions. We are witnessing, I, I, I want to be daring enough and see a paradigm shift, but I want to, qualify that a little bit more, and say, we are witnessing what could potentially be the beginning of that paradigm shift. And this is why. In the previous Israeli wars on Gaza, there was a lot of ignorance. 2008-9, 2012-2014, the Israeli propaganda machine, the Hasbara machine, has worked its miracles, in brainwashing so many communities around the world and so many nations into believing that Israel is fighting um, against uh, Palestinian terrorists, and this fight is part, part and parcel of the larger American war on terror that is taking place from Syria to Iraq to Afghanistan and Somalia. But during since then until today, two things happened. number one, there has been a lot of shift happening within international priorities regarding what they once regarded the war on terror. Uh, The U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East has been exposed in many ways. The U.S. has been retreating from the Middle East, what, what is being called or what was called in 2012, the pivot to Asia. The U.S. is not as invested in the Middle East anymore, as much as they used to. Anymore, and new players are are kind of like made their way to the scene, Russia, China, and other forces. So when they and that's the, the Israeli mistake, they grew too comfortable with that discourse, thinking that the moment that they are going to go to war against Gaza, they just need to go back to the archive, pull out that same file you know call this a war on terror the world is going to applaud them and nobody is going to care about the palestinians but there was a massive shift that is happening what's happening within the democratic parties um, kind of the rank and file within the democratic party this the, this radicalization that's happening within american society that is now pushing people the elites and the leadership of the democratic party to catch up with the changes that are happening at the grassroots levels in the United States. This massive phenomenon of intersectionality. Eric, we have been talking about this as if it's an academic notion. But we are actually seeing a very rare moment where academic notions are actually translating them translating themselves into a tangible reality. We see intersectionality in action and it's happening at a global level. But also Palestinians are waking up. Palestinians are fed up with the lies about the peace process and the two-state solutions, and you know Mahmoud Abbas coming to the United Nations every September, giving a fiery speech, going back, promising his people, you know, the 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 sea and delivering nothing. Um, they are fed up. They are fed up. And 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 another thing has been happening, and that is we are beginning to see a new Palestinian language, a new Palestinian discourse that is being formulated. I remember in 2014 how frustrated I was when when the West Bank did not rise in solidarity with the Palestinians uh, in Gaza. Not because the West Bankers did not care, but there was this element of fear that existed. So much of it to to the point that most Palestinians felt like they could not organize at a grassroots level. Whenever they tried to do so, Either the Israelis would come and kidnap them in the middle of the night and throw them in prison, or even Mahmoud Abbas and his minions would come and kidnap them and throw them in prison. So so what happened in Gaza, it actually didn't register at a grassroots level in the West Bank. But this has changed. It has changed because the Palestinians are united and they speak in one voice, from Sheikh Jarrah to Gaza, to Ramli and Lid, to to Ramallah and and, and Al-Khalil, Hebron, Nablus, uh, and, 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 and elsewhere. Throughout Palestine. That message of unity coming from the Palestinians ended, the com- ended any doubt among the Palestinian solidarity movement, um, you know, on whether Palestinians are united or not. One thing that I've been told numerous times, and I'm sure that many Palestinian speakers and writers can testify to the same issue, is that we have always been told by many others within our movements, well, I support Palestinians, but why can't you guys be united? So it's always kind of served as this, you know, kind of, you know, I will always condition my support on whether Palestinians are united or something to the effect of, I support the Palestinian cause, but I don't like Hamas, as if it's some sort of a sports, you know, game in which you support one team against the other. This time around, you don't see this language anymore. The ones who are resisting in Gaza are not Hamas are not the Islamic Jihad, are not the secularists, are not the socialists, but everybody. And that resistance would have never existed for a single day if it were not for the fact that millions of Palestinians are, are standing in solidarity with them and sustaining that resistance. I think this is really important, Eric, and if you don't mind me elaborating on this so very quickly. We tend to separate between two forms of resistance. Popular resistance, which we perceive to be peaceful, nonviolent resistance, and armed resistance, or what is being referred to as violent resistance. But here is the truth. The truth is armed, res- armed resistance could never exist and can never be sustained for more than a few days, weeks, or months if it were not for the fact that it's behind this resistance is a massive popular movement that is making it happen. I grew up in Uh, a refugee camp in the Gaza Strip, called Nusayrat. And from that camp, the largest in size and the second largest in population, from that camp, so many different Palestinian political and ideological movements started, from Fatah to even Hamas actually started from my neighborhood, uh, and, and it became the movement that it is today. But most of the armed resistance movements were vanquished by Israel so very quickly. Because it worked in secrecy, it did not have any particular popular support behind it, maybe sympathy, but not actual popular support. So throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, starting with the movement that we call the Fideiyin, the Freedom Fighters, in the late 1940s and the early 1950s, Israel managed to eliminate each movement one after the other, killing all of its members, drying their financial resources, imprisoning the rest, and so forth. And that's the end of it. This time around, this particular movement has subsisted and sustained itself throughout the years, not because of money coming from Iran or because the support that's coming from Qatar and so forth and so on, but because there are millions of Palestinians who insist on their right to defend themselves. And that's where the support of the resistance is coming from. And this is why we need to stop kind of delinking Popular resistance from armed resistance of these as if they are two different phenomena. In Palestine, it's the exact same phenomenon. It's all popular resistance. But that popular resistance manifests itself in so many different ways. In Hebron, different from Gaza. In Gaza, different from Ramli. Ramli, different from Jerusalem. And that's really the essence behind it. And this is why this time around, I noticed kind of a, a, a critical change in the discourse concerning Palestine within the Solidarity Movement and beyond the Solidarity Movement. And that is people are not making judgment. People are not qualifying their support for Palestine and the Palestinians based on, I hate this party and I like this party. I hate the way you resist, but I I feel bad for you because you are being victimized by Israel. This kind of judgmental thinking is not there anymore to the point that yesterday, actually, MSNBC had a segment in which a famous American commentator actually declared, yes, Israel does have the right to exist and defend itself, but Palestinians too have the right to exist and defend itself. Now, defend themselves. Now, I know this is not enough to get us to where we want by because the commentator is creating immoral equivalence. but coming from MSNBC, one that was traditionally one of the most Zionist." outlets or pro-Zionist, pro-Israel outlets in American media. um, It's a massive change. Palestinians are now being defended for defending themselves. And that is just a major change that's happening before our eyes.
0: So critical to note that, and I think it's also critical to discuss the fact that the war that the Israelis have launched and the ongoing aggression and in a long and seemingly never-ending series of aggressions, that these are not the only ways that Israel uh, perpetrates its crimes against humanity and war crimes against the Palestinian people. Of course, they use things like water, access to medicine, many other very uh, sort of vital basic essential. of life that Israel controls and lords over the people of Gaza and the Palestinians, broadly speaking. And uh, that... I think comes to mind again in reading the news of just the last couple of days that the Israelis have targeted and assassinated uh, some of the leading figures in the Palestinian uh, health infrastructure, including, I think, a famous neurologist and I believe the head of their COVID response. So can you talk a little bit about some of these really uh, uh, just... I mean, inhuman kind of acts by the Israeli government vis-a-vis the ability of Palestinians to take care of themselves and the elderly and the sick and, and others.
1: Absolutely. Now, Eric, we, we understand that what Israel is doing in Gaza right now is horrific. The, 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 the deaths of hundreds of people and many, many more people are still buried under the rubble and, and the wounding of thousands is it's absolutely horrific. There's no argument about it. But what many people do not realize, that Palestinian deaths happen every day, even if Palestinians are not being shot, even if Palestinians are not being bombarded from the sky, even if Palestinians are not being shelled from 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 the sea. Palestinians are dying for so many different reasons at the hands of Israel. And that's the kind of criminality that does not really make it to the news. In fact, some some in the media are, are saying things like, uh, in mainstream media, they are talking about After years of quiet, uh, you know, Israel and Hamas are at it again. What quiet? When you are living under a a system of military occupation, when your cancer patients in Gaza are not able to get medicine and they are dying while waiting at checkpoints, This is something that I've been writing about and many Palestinians have been writing about for, for years. And thanks to Counterpunch, many of these articles have kind of trying to kind of register you know make a little bit of difference because a lot of people shifted their thinking and looked away from palestine as if nothing was taking place 97% of gaza's water is polluted 97% and i've wrote about this particular issue of water pollution and the many diseases including diarrhea that is causing among the general population and the fact that people are dying from easily treat- treatable diseases such as diarrhea and i've interviewed uh, various people in the medical field in Gaza and, and you know, even the Shifa hospital, the largest medical compound in Gaza, quite often do not actually have clean water as a result of this. So, so imagine this situation. Uh, 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 the Gaza Strip, this tiny little enclave, is already on its knees. It's already being pushed to the brink. The United Nations has declared a few years ago that in, by the year 2000, the Gaza Strip will become uninhabitable. Now, I made an argument that actually, logically, the Gaza Strip has already been uninhabitable for so many years. But even per UN moderate standards, it means that Gaza right now, where 2 million people are living, is, is has been a situation that cannot sustain human habitation. But here is the thing. Then the COVID-19 happened. COVID-19 pandemic happened. And Israel prevented Palestinians from getting proper treatment, for not having enough uh, testing kits, um, from not being allowed to, you know, export or rather import needed doctors, medical supplies and so forth and so on. So they are now dealing, I mean, this whole war happened while the Palestinian medical establishment or medical infrastructure trying to fighting desperately to deal with the lack of everything. And people are dying from COVID-19 at a large scale. And then Israel comes and now targeting the same infrastructure that was barely operating to begin with. So a friend of mine, his dad just died from COVID-19 yesterday in in a hospital in Rafah in the southern Gaza Strip. And I spoke to him. His name is Ahmed. And I told him, Ahmed, I am so sorry about your loss. And he said, you know, Ramzi, there's a part of me that I'm actually happy that my father died. And I said, what are you talking about? Why would you feel that way? He said, well, the the area around the hospital was being bombed. My father was dying and he was scared at the same time of the bombs. He said, I held his his hand the entire time, reassuring him that everything is going to be okay. But I knew it was not going to be okay. When he closed his eyes and he died... A part of me felt that at least he could be spared a different type of death. At least he managed to die, quote, in the quote, peacefully. And I was still holding his hand because I don't know what would have happened. So you have people dying from COVID-19 and are, right now they are in these, you know, being pushed in these little wards and hospitals throughout the Gaza Strip, witnessing a different type of death that is falling on them from the sky. This is the reality of Gaza at the moment. It is an absolutely horrific reality. Yet somehow this incredible nation, they are still standing on their feet and they are still fighting back.
0: In the last couple of minutes, we have. I want to just quickly shift to the international uh, side of this question. I just want to. I want to ask you if you think that the events that we've been witnessing over the last week or so, and what potentially will be in the in the coming weeks and months, do you think that this will have an impact on the international scene? As you mentioned earlier in our conversation, uh, the Israelis have been, you know, by piecemeal sort of normalizing relations with key uh, Arab countries. I wonder if. If that uh, ongoing process is in danger because of these developments and or if this is going to potentially raise other international questions, Uh, as you mentioned, regional powers have become increasingly assertive, Uh, Turkey being one, um, you know, other countries getting involved as well. So I want to ask you what to what extent will the international players, many of whom are behind the scenes you know have, have behind the scenes influence with this issue how might this impact their posture?
1: You know this this situation in Palestine not just the Israeli war on Gaza or the Israeli war on the Palestinians everywhere, but the fact that Palestine, the Palestinian people are rising in an unprecedented intifada uprising that we haven't really seen the like of in such a long time. Some people say this goes back to 1987 when Palestinians rose in a similar intifada, but some people, and I agree with that historical analysis, that this, the, the only thing that we considered similar to this was the Palestinian revolt of 1936, because of the number of Palestinian communities this includes throughout Palestine. And I think this is going to have historical repercussions that will will last not for months, but for years. One interesting thing is that many people have been waiting for the Saudis and the Israelis to declare some normalization agreement any day. Uh, This started with Jared Kushner, as you know, and that whole Trump administration push for normalization, and it was only the matter of time. Yesterday, at the, at the uh, one of the most sacred mosques in Mecca, the center of, of Islamic thought, but also the center of, of Saudi power, spiritual power. You know that the speeches of the imams in this mosque do not just happen haphazardly. They have to be sanctioned, and they have to be approved by the Saudi government itself. The imam stood and made the most compassionate and impassionate speech for Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, praying against the Zionists, pre- praying against the defeat of the Zionists, and victory for the Palestinians. I thought that this is absolutely incredible. This is not a religious movement. This is a political movement, because, because you can't, as, as a member of the Saudi regime, expect that you are gonna shift the political discourse in such a way and come around the other day and go and sign a normalization agreement. I think if it's anything, this push normalization Years behind. And I think that the Emiratis and the Bahrainis who signed this agreement, I am sure that they are regretting the timing of it because they have been isolated so extremely right now among Middle Eastern, Arab, and Muslim nations because of the normalization with Israel.
0: And how do you view Turkey in all of this? Turkey has become so assertive in recent years in the Eastern Mediterranean. Of course, the issue of Palestinian slash Israeli conflicts over gas, offshore gas. The Turks have been involved in a lot of these issues. And of course, Turkey is intimately involved in places like Libya. They had a role to play in the conflict in Syria and beyond. So I'm wondering how you view Turkey and whether Turkey might uh, ultimately gain some influence out of this.
1: Of course, Turkey, I, you know, this is like purely a political analysis in the sense that governments like Turkey and other governments, they try to, you know, kind of paint their position in, 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 a, in, in, in moral pressures, that this is really ultimately about doing the right thing in the Palestinian people and all this. And I'm, I'm not doubting the sincerity of some indiv- individuals, perhaps, within the political establishment in Ankara, but it's ultimately a political, a, 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 a game of politics as well. And, and as we know, as of late, Turkey began losing ground a great deal, partly because the Syria, uh, the Syria conflict, the Syrian civil war, is being, uh, or, or was being resolved in a way that is inconsistent with Turkey's ultimate political objectives, at least the one that championed, the ones that it championed in the very beginning of the Syrian war. So there has been a bit of shift in Turkey's position. In fact, uh, just few days really before all of this took place, we saw a, a Turkish delegation of the highest caliber meeting with an Egyptian dele- delegation and trying to sort out their, their disagreements and their, um, and, and their conflicts. And that is happening at the expense of the anti cc the anti-Egyptian government opposition that is based in Turkey. And there's been a lot of talks, what does this mean? Will people, such as people involved with Hamas and Palestinian opposition parties, and of course the Muslim Brotherhood and other others, will they be allowed to operate in Turkey openly? Will they be allowed to push uh, a, a strong uh, anti-Israel, anti-Egypt discourse? Or will Turkey opt for kind of real politics at the expense of these moral positions? I think this issue is now being resolved. If you look at the political discourse coming from Ankara, coming from Erdogan in particular, he is reclaiming the narrative that he has championed in the previous war. So I think there is a complete reset that is happening here. And that is definitely going to empower Ankara, going to empower Erdogan and the Erdogan government in particular. But we are also seeing changes that are happening in Saudi Arabia, as I mentioned earlier, and in Egypt, one of the top, uh, um, top members of Hamas met with the... The, the, the highest religious authority that works for the state, of course, in Cairo, just yesterday, where the Sheikh or the Imam of Al-Azhar Mosque conveyed to the Hamas leader the total support and solidarity of Al-Azhar and the Egyptian religious establishment, and thus the Egyptian people. So now there is the reincorporation of Hamas and other Palestinian movements into mainstream discourse in the Arab world. What does this really mean, ultimately? I think it all depends on how what how the outcome of, of all of this is going to be interpreted politically. And I think once the war stops and it will stop, once it stops, there will be a great deal of analysis and a great deal of uh, various forces pushing to reclaim or to claim some kind of victory. Israel is going to claim its own kind of victory, but we know that Israel has already lost that war. But how will the Palestinian position be interpreted And how will it translate politically on the ground? And what does it mean for Hamas and other Palestinian factions? And how will that affect those who support Palestinians and and Hamas in particular and those who stood historically against Palestinians and Hamas in particular?
0: last couple of minutes ramsey what is your what is your piece of advice your parting words for anybody listening who wants to express their solidarity with uh with palestine with the palestinian people getting involved in this of course obviously protests ongoing as of uh you know as of now with the with with you know with the fighting and everything happening but the Palestinian issue doesn't begin and end with the current round of violence, so what do people really need to do to become uh, activists in solidarity with the Palestinian people fighting for liberation?
1: Absolutely Eric, I think I think the answer to this starts with with the fact that people must educate themselves in a deeper way about what is happening. This cannot be all about you know developing political positions based on impressions that we gather from social media is just not enough no matter how compassionate and sympathetic these views are we need a deeper and better understanding and there is no better way of starting that understanding than actually delving into the writings living uh, the writings of palestinians themselves palestinian historians such as edward said such as uh, uh, Nurma Salha, such as Ghada karmi and and, and many others Dig into Palestinian rights and Rashid al-Khalidi, of course, and Walid al-Khalidi and other Palestinian historians. So try to build a better foundation for understanding this situation. And then think, what is my moral position? What can I do? It's no longer an excuse of saying there's nothing I can do. There is something that you can do. Whether you refuse to buy Israeli products... Whether you enlist in a in a in a pro-Palestinian civil society organization, whether you support Palestinian uh, educational charities or or Palestinian healthcare uh, organizations and so forth, um, the, and, and you can reach out to others, you can educate others. But it's so important that you make your voice heard. Let your representative know that this is this is this is where you stand on this issue, and you are not going to budge on that. You are going to keep pushing for this change. In your government foreign policy, until it actually takes place. In other words, you need to take a side. You need to take a side. You can't be neutral, um, as as the saying say uh, goes. You can't be neutral in the situations of injustice. You can't be neutral. You have to take the side of of the 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 right side on this issue, and that is the side of the oppressed, victimized, and occupied Palestinian people.
0: Beautifully said, as always, Ramzi Baroud, friend of Counterpunch, just one of the most important voices we have. So grateful that uh, you found a few minutes to chat with us again tonight. Uh, RamziBaroud.net is the website. Palestine Chronicle is the other website. Both should be in your regular news feeds and rotations. Uh, Ramzi Baroud's book, the fourth, well, the, the most recent book, These Chains Will Be Broken, Stories of Struggle and Defiance in Israeli Prisons, and the forthcoming book, Our Vision for Liberation engage Palestinian leaders and intellectuals speak out. Ramsey. as always, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and for helping us understand all of these issues.
1: My pleasure, Eric. Keep up the good work. Thank you.
0: Listeners, thank you.
1: As always, do what you can to
0: support the Palestinian cause. It is so crucial. And we will talk again next week.